0: Hi, I'm Mike Paul, and welcome to this podcast of articles from Ars Technica, a presentation of Ayers LA, the audio internet reading service of Los Angeles. You're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print-impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. We have five articles for you today. Our first article is by John Timmer, published on December 28, 2021. China Upset About Needing to Dodge SpaceX Starlink Satellites Earlier in December, the Chinese government filed a document with the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space at the United Nations. The body helps manage the terms of the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space or more commonly known as the Outer Space Treaty. In the document, China alleges that it had to move its space station twice this year due to potential collisions with Starlink satellites operated by SpaceX. The document pointedly notes that signatories of the treaty, which include the U.S., are responsible for the actions of any non-governmental activities based within their borders. The document was filed back on December 6th, but it only came to light recently when Chinese internet users became aware of it and started flaming Elon Musk, head of SpaceX. The document starts out with an impossibly formal 110-word-long sentence that notes the Outer Space Treaty obliges its signatories to inform other nations when they discover any phenomena in space that could pose a risk to astronauts. It then indicates that China has identified such a threat, Starlink satellites. Starlink is SpaceX's satellite-based internet service, which launched in beta earlier this year. To achieve decent coverage, the company has already put up a large number of small satellites and has plans for many, many more. This has caused worries within the astronomy community, as the satellites can potentially photobomb astronomical observations, appearing as long streaks across lengthy exposures. There have also been concerns about how the large constellations of satellites could worsen our space junk problem, although these were eclipsed when Russia blew up one of its satellites in November, creating a massive debris cloud. China's complaint seems to be an attempt to return the world's attention to SpaceX satellites. The document describes two cases in which the country alleges it had to move the China space station out of the way of a Starlink satellite. The first is one where it says a Starlink device had been operating at over 500 kilometers, but was brought down to 382 kilometers through a series of maneuvers that completed on June 24th. A week later, this new orbit created a close encounter with the China space station. In the second case, the space station was moved simply because China couldn't figure out what SpaceX's hardware was doing. The maneuver strategy was unknown and orbital errors were hard to be assessed, the document reads. There was thus a collision risk between the Starlink 2305 satellite and the China space station. The document goes on to remind everyone that while the U.S. doesn't exert control over SpaceX, it is responsible for any problems it creates. It quotes the Outer Space Treaty as saying that states' parties to the treaty shall bear international responsibility for national activities in outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies. Whether such activities are carried on by governmental agencies or by non-governmental agencies— and for assuring that the national activities are carried out in conformity with the provisions set forth in the present treaty. As of today, the incidents have not been independently verified, and SpaceX hasn't responded to any requests for comment. But the Chinese government, for its part, would like the U.S. government to step in. (laughs) Our second article is by Sharon Harding, published on December 29, 2021. Worker protests, mass illness, lead Apple to put iPhone plant on probation. Apple has put a Foxconn manufacturing plant that makes iPhone 12s and is running trial production of the iPhone 13 on probation, Reuters reported today. The move comes after both Apple and Foxconn determined that some worker dorms and dining rooms failed to meet requirements. Production at the plant in Shreep India, has already been halted for a week and a half. Apple placed a plant belonging to Wistron Corp., another one of its suppliers, on probation last year due to unrest, Reuters noted. And Wistron didn't receive any new business from Apple during that period. The Foxconn plant in question has been closed since December 18th. Protests had broken out that week after 256 factory workers were treated for food poisoning, including 159 who were hospitalized. At the time, the local government described it as an outbreak of acute diarrheal disease. There's no expected reopening date as of yet, but one unnamed state government official said it may not reopen until January 3rd. The factory's approximately 17,000 workers will be paid in the interim. Taiwan-headquartered Foxconn is currently shuffling the factory's local management team and working to make its facilities better, according to a spokesperson. For its part, Apple has sent independent auditors to examine the dormitories in consideration of, quote, recent concerns about food safety and accommodation conditions, a spokesperson said. The third article is by Beth Mole, published on December 28, 2021. CDC draws criticism for shorter COVID quarantine, isolation, as Omicron bears down. As the ultra-transmissible Omicron coronavirus variant bears down on the U.S., the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on Monday made a controversial decision to ease COVID-19 isolation and quarantine rules. The country's omicron surge has sent graphs of case counts vertical and is already causing severe strain on health systems, shuttering businesses and wreaking havoc on holiday travel and festivities. The US is currently averaging over 243,000 new COVID-19 cases per day, near the country's all-time high of an average just over 250,000 per day set in early January 2021. Still, Federal officials and public health experts say this is only the beginning of Omicron's towering wave, which may not peak until next month. The CDC's decision Monday is intended to ease the economic burden of skyrocketing cases and follows an accumulation of data suggesting that infectiousness tends to wane two to three days after the onset of symptoms. However, Some public experts called the new rules reckless for not incorporating testing requirements. As of Monday, the CDC says that people who test positive for COVID-19 but do not develop symptoms can cut their isolation period down from 10 days to only 5, though they must wear a mask for an additional 5 days when around others. The new guidance does not stipulate that people should test negative prior to ending isolation at the earlier time period. The change is motivated by science demonstrating that the majority of SARS-CoV-2 transmission occurs early in the course of illness, generally in the one to two days prior to onset of symptoms and the two to three days after, the CDC said in its announcement. Similarly, the CDC slashed quarantine records for people who are unvaccinated or are vaccinated but past due for a booster dose. If someone in one of these two groups is exposed to someone with COVID-19, that is, they were within 6 feet of an infected person for a cumulative 15 or more minutes over a 24-hour period, they can quarantine for only 5 days, rather than the previous recommendation of 14. The exposed person must still mask for an additional 5 days after the quarantine period. Again, the new rule does not stipulate that an exposed person receive a negative test to end quarantine. The CDC did not change its guidance for people who are vaccinated and boosted, or vaccinated and not yet eligible for a booster. For these groups, people do not need to quarantine after an exposure unless they develop symptoms. However, the CDC still recommends that they get tested and mask indoors. In a statement Monday, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky called the new recommendations a balance between fighting the formidable variant and keeping the country functioning. The Omicron variant is spreading quickly and has the potential to impact all facets of our society, Walensky said. The CDC's updated recommendations for isolation and quarantine balance what we know about the spread of the virus and the protection provided by vaccination and booster doses. These updates ensure people can safely continue their daily lives. Prevention is our best option. Get vaccinated, get boosted, wear a mask in public indoor settings in areas of substantial and high community transmission, and take a test before you gather. The decision grew praise from businesses and industry leaders, particularly those in charge of airlines. There have been thousands of flights canceled over the holidays due in part to staff shortages, Just last week, the airline trade group, Airlines for America, lobbied the CDC to cut recommended isolation periods. In a statement late Monday, Delta Airlines welcomed the CDC's updated guidance, saying it allows more flexibility for Delta to schedule crews and employees to support a busy holiday travel season and a sustained return to travel by customers. Delta's chief health officer, Dr. Henry Ting, added that it is a safe, science-based, and more practical approach based on what we now know about the Omicron variant. But while other public health experts generally agreed with Ting's point, they were frustrated that the CDC's new guidance did not also require negative test results. Dr. Michael Mina, a Harvard epidemiologist and longtime advocate of rapid testing, called the new guidance reckless. He noted that while some people may be infectious for only three days, some may be infectious for longer periods, even up to 12 days. I absolutely don't want to sit next to someone who turned positive five days ago and hasn't tested negative, Mina wrote on Twitter. Requiring a negative test to leave isolation early is just smart, he concluded. Similarly, Dr. Celine Grounder, an infectious disease expert at New York University, said on Twitter that the shortened isolation and quarantine periods are only reasonable if they're paired with rapid testing. People are infectious for a wide range of time, some for a couple of days, others for a week, she wrote. Gounder and others pointed out that the CDC may not have included testing requirements in their update because the country is currently seeing shortages of rapid tests and long lines at testing centers. CDC's isolation policy is being driven by a scarcity of rapid antigen tests, she concluded. But Mina pushed back on this excuse, calling it an artificial problem stemming from a failure to fortify testing capability earlier in the pandemic. The fourth article is by Doug Johnson, published on December 28th, 2021. For mammals, eating other animals can increase cancer risk. Cancer is a sad fact of life, as nearly 40% of people are diagnosed with it at some point in their lives. But humans aren't alone in this. Many different species can also develop the disease, some more often than others. By studying these species and their habits and natural defenses, or lack thereof, we can learn new ways to combat the disease. New research that involves a comprehensive study of cancer shows that many mammals can indeed get cancer. To gain insight into this, the team looked at records for 110,148 animals from 191 species that died in zoos. The data came from Species360, an international nonprofit that collects and unifies this kind of data from zoos across the world, according to Orsolia Vinci, a research fellow at the Center for Ecological Research in Hungary and one of the paper's authors. Using the data gathered by the organization, the research team could collect information on what the animals died of, she told ours. The team limited their search to data points taken after 2010, because prior to that, the record-keeping wasn't as good, she said. Further, the team only studied animals in zoos because it's difficult to collect this kind of information from species in the wild. Animals in their native habitats that get cancer are also more likely to be preyed upon or starve to death. They tend to die earlier, Vinci said. You have to go to zoos where every individual is followed and you know when they die and you know what they died of, she said. Most of the species the team studied had some cancer risk. The only two exceptions, as far as the data goes, were the black buck, a kind of antelope, and the Patagonian mara, a kind of rodent. The data included info on 196 and 213 individuals from those species, respectively. Carnivores, however, were particularly prone to cancer. Within the dataset, more than a quarter of clouded lepers, bat-eared foxes, and red wolves died of cancer, for instance. According to Vinci, there are some hypotheses surrounding why this might be the case. For one, carnivores have different microbiomes compared to other types of animals, which could be an issue as a rich community of microorganisms can help limit cancer. Carnivores, particularly those in captivity, also have limited ranges. A lack of physical activity could also contribute. Raw meat, like the kind most carnivorous mammals eat, can also contain bacteria and other microbes that can increase the risk of getting cancer. For example, raw cow meat can carry bovine leukemia virus, which some studies have suggested can increase the chance of a human getting breast cancer. Overall, though... Vinci said that more research needs to be done in this area. Somewhat surprisingly, animal size is not correlated to cancer risk. Cancer mutations usually occur when cells divide. In theory, a larger, longer-lived animal should have more cell divisions than smaller animals, and thus, they should be more prone to cancer. This is seen in dogs and humans. Larger members of both species tend to have higher cancer risk, Vincey said. However, larger species aren't particularly at higher risk for getting the disease—a phenomenon called Peto's paradox. According to Vinci, this is likely because the species evolved ways to combat cancer in their genetic pasts. By studying the mechanisms through which these large species suppress cancer, we could potentially develop ways to fight the disease. And by studying why some species have higher instances of the disease, we can learn more about it in general, Vinci said. We could really look into the molecular mechanisms and identify them and try to design new treatment methods for cancer in humans and animals alike, she said. Our fifth and final article is by Charlotte Mills and Ashley Hookings. This story originally appeared in The Conversation and was republished to ours on December 27, 2021. Coffee's health benefits aren't as straightforward as they seem. You've probably heard it before, drinking coffee is good for your health. Studies have shown that drinking a moderate amount of coffee is associated with many health benefits, including a lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. But while these associations have been demonstrated many times, they don't actually prove that coffee reduces disease risk. In fact, proving that coffee is good for your health is complicated. While it's suggested that consuming 3-5 to cups of coffee a day will provide optimal health benefits, It's not quite that straightforward. Coffee is chemically complex, containing many components that can affect your health in different ways. While caffeine is the most well-known compound in coffee, there is more to coffee than caffeine. Here are a few of the other compounds found in coffee that might affect your health. Alkaloids. Aside from caffeine, trigonoline is another important alkaloid found in coffee. Trigonolene is less researched than caffeine, but research suggests that it may have health benefits, such as reducing the risk of type 2 diabetes. Polyphenols. Some research shows that these compounds, which are found in many plants, including cocoa and blueberries, are good for your heart and blood vessels and may help to prevent neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. Coffee predominantly contains a class of polyphenols called chlorogenic acids. Diterpenes. Coffee contains two types of diterpenes. Cafistol and caweol, that make up coffee oil, the natural fatty substance released from coffee during brewing. Diterpenes may increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. Melanoidins. These compounds, which are produced at high temperatures during the roasting process, give roasted coffee its color and provide the characteristic flavor and aroma of coffee. They may also have a prebiotic effect, meaning they increase the amount of beneficial bacteria in your gut, which is important for overall health. The way your coffee is grown, brewed, and served can all affect the compounds your coffee contains and hence the health benefits you might see. First, growing conditions can affect the levels of caffeine and chlorogenic acids the coffee contains. For example, coffee grown at high altitudes will have both lower caffeine and chlorogenic acid content. The two types of coffee beans, Arabica and Robusta, have also been shown to have different caffeine, chlorogenic acid, and trigonelline levels. Although, neither type has been shown to be more beneficial to health. The extent that coffee is roasted is also key. The more severe the roasting, the more melanoidins formed, and the more intense the flavor. But this lowers chlorogenic acids and trigonelline content. In the UK, instant coffee is the most commonly consumed type of coffee. This is typically freeze-dried. Research shows that instant coffee contains higher levels of melanoidins per serving compared with filter coffee and espresso. How you prepare your coffee will also affect its chemical composition. For example, boiled coffee contains a higher level of diterpenes compared with filter coffee. Other factors, such as the amount of coffee used, how finely it was ground, water temperature, and cup size, will also affect the coffee's chemical composition. Every compound has different effects on your health, which is why the way coffee is produced and brewed can be important. Chlorogenic acids, for example, are thought to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease by improving the function of your arteries. There's also evidence that they may reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes by controlling your blood sugar spikes after eating. On the other hand, diterpenes have been shown to increase levels of low-density lipoprotein, a type of cholesterol associated with cardiovascular disease. While less research has focused on trigenoline and melanoidins, Some evidence suggests both may be good for your health. Adding cream, sugar, and syrup will change the nutritional content of your cup. Not only will it increase the calorie content, they may also increase your intake of saturated fats and sugars. Both of these are associated with increased risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and may counter the beneficial effects of the other compounds your cup of coffee contains. There's also evidence that people may respond differently to some of these compounds. Regularly drinking three to four cups of coffee daily has been shown to build tolerance to the blood pressure-raising effects of caffeine. Genetics may also play a role in how your body handles caffeine and other compounds. Increasing evidence also points to the gut microbiome as an important factor in determining what health effects coffee may have. For example, Some research suggests the gut microbes play an important role in chlorogenic acid metabolism and hence may determine if they will benefit your health or not. Researchers need to conduct large studies to confirm the findings of these smaller studies which seem to show that coffee is good for your health. But in the meantime, minimize the sugar and cream you use in your coffee. And if you're in good health and aren't pregnant, Continue to take a moderate approach to coffee consumption, choosing filter coffee where possible. Well, that brings us to the end of today's articles. To find out more about Airs LA and the types of programs we offer, follow us at Facebook.com/AirzLA. If you like what's there, please hit the like button. Music for this podcast is provided by HotFire. I'm Mike Paul, and I'll be back soon with more informative stories from Ars Technica. Thanks for listening.